Hey, Joe. Hello. Hey, can we call someone on Skype? Because I like that little song. <laughs> Puts me in the mood. Uh, as you know, you're in charge of booking guests. And Do you have, have a, guest? a guest today? No. Oh, okay. But I'm just saying we could call somebody just to hear the song. Because I like that song. It's very cheery. You mean like... Uh, Be a good cheer. Like, the, uh, like those old uh, Jerky Boys prank calls thing. You want to get in that line of business. You want to no, get in that no, line I'm of No, no, I'm not work. saying that. I'm saying I just like that song. In fact, I'm, it's sort of the opposite of that. It's There's a nice, guy. jolly song that puts me in a good mood. Y- y- Joe, you know, of course... I need a mood elevator is what I'm saying. Joe, you know the Twitch, right? You know Twitch. I, I've heard of it, yeah. Twitch.tv, the big... The, the site where people play video games and other people watch them. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, I've heard some interesting stuff about um, some of the some of the running comment on on the stuff being skewed pretty hard right in terms of politics. Mm. Um, so I mean, that, I don't know. So I in mean, terms of some discourse analysis that they've done of some of the you know our people listening for hours to the people playing these games. Well, so, it depends on which channel you're on. I mean, you oh, know, I suppose it yeah. does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a whole. There are a whole bunch of different people doing uh, lots and lots of different games and. And things, including art and live, you know, there's there's a Bob Ross channel. Which is great. On the weekends, comes on, they do a, do a marathon. Well, there's this one guy who calls scammers. Calls scammers. Yes. So, you know, you, you ever get those things, you know, a little pop-up saying, hey, your, your computer's been compromised or you're owed a refund or whatever, I'll call this number. Mm. Um, and so he sets up a virtual machine and calls them and lets them connect to his virtual machine and try to scam him. <laughs> okay. It's fascinating. Huh. It's fascinating. Just the scams that they have are so dumb. That, that was one thing that was surprising. I figure once they had access to your machine that they would do something kind of clever, but they don't. Hmm. They ask you to connect to your bank account and they do things like uh, um, uh, use the uh, um, edit, edit the HTML right in front of you to, to make it seem like you have a larger balance so they you can't tell. that. You know, anyway, it's stupid. It's just all dumb. Huh. So surprising to me. Yeah, I you know I guess I'm more into a scripted narrative um, audiovisual experience. No, you're not. You listen to podcasts all the time. I I do, but when I'm in terms of visual, like if I'm going to watch a channel, mm. something I would call a channel, it's more likely to be, you know, the magicians on Sci-Fi or, um, you know, Game of Thrones on HBO or something like that, instead of just some dude. Uh, shooting at a thing in a game. Oh, see, it's spoken like someone who really doesn't hasn't watched much Twitch, doesn't know what it's about. <laughs> well, it's funny because I was never, I myself was not ever really that into video games. Mm-hmm. So I don't have the experience of like enjoying them myself as a player or, you know, playing them with a bunch of other people or which I think probably helps contribute to enjoying that experience as a viewer. Right. Yeah. But it's like, it's like, it's like connecting to now having said that, I also have not ridden a dragon. So what am I connecting to in the game of Thrones? But we need to hurry up and get through this so we can get to the meat of the podcast, of course, because we are now a game of Thrones podcast and we're going to dissect the, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> That's you know what the world needs is more more dudes sitting around talking about Game of Thrones. Yeah, right. Yeah, not enough of that. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, well, I, so so you know what's one thing that's gotten popular on Twitter. So I, was, I only mentioned that because of the scammer thing because you wanted to call people and I was thinking about this guy yeah, calling I didn't, people again. I I just want to hear the Skype song for calling a person. Well, I don't really want to call a person. But you know what's gotten popular on on Twitch. So every now and then something gets popular, a whole genre gets popular, and and popular streamers who are really people watch them more for their personality than for the for the games that they might play mm. uh is role playing within a video game so okay. you 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 get an open world video game 
and people can join the same server mm. and they use the video game to create to act out a story okay to role play i mean right. yeah literal role playing but without uh without rolling r o l l i n g dice or anything mm. like that mm-hmm. right it's um they make up characters they interact and they use sometimes you know they try to use the mechanics of the game to advance the story but of course we'll just make things up and and so mo- what people are the very popular right now is uh, grand theft auto 5 you're familiar with the GTA series. I've heard of it. I've seen clips of it on television advertisements, right. I think, of the game. But the interesting thing is it's just a platform for this role play. So it's not about the story that the that um uh you know that that uh the publishers put forth in the in the solo game or even the online GTA. It's okay. it's just a platform. Yeah. Kind of interesting. Oh, it's a pl- so it's like a place to hang out. What was that? Well, it's more than a place to hang out, but because you make up a character, it's really it's yes, a little bit. It's not quite like LARPing, mm. um, it, but it's also not like playing D anD. d And f- listeners, although will, there is D anD. d There is, uh, you know, there 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 are streams of people playing D anD. d in groups that are very popular. Too. Yeah, that's that's uh, quite unsurprising. Mm. Uh, <laughs> LARPing, uh, dear listener, is live action role play, abbreviated LARP. Joe, yes. You do not need to tell our audience that, I think. I'm not sure about that. I think some people don't realize how... And some people don't realize just how powerful the the whole LARPing thing is. Like, once you start asking yourself, gosh, maybe this is all just LARPing. (laughs) Um, The number of times the answer to that could be yes, uh, it really skyrockets. Once you let that idea in your brain... Is this a version of LARPing? Yeah. It, yeah, you're doing a thing. Uh, you're having fun with your friends, doing something. You're saying, "Wait a minute, are we really LARPing?" Right. We, I'm not dressed as a dragon or a, a magician, but but yeah. is this LARPing nonetheless? Right. And it's hmm. so it's sort of um, it's it's Irving Goffman's, you know, uh, like m- social masks and social roles and stuff mm-hmm. um, run amok once you let the <laughs> LARPing thing in your head. Uh, it really can get. Have you, have you ever LARPed? Like tr- like LARP LARPed? I could be doing it right now. That's the funny no, thing. No, no, but have right? you LARP LARPed? Oh, I haven't, I haven't like, you know, uh, high power cosplay LARPed. No. Like, do you ever, do you have a foam mace? Do I have a what? A foam mace. A mace made out of foam or something else. I, I, do, I do not. In other words, an implement of traditional LARP LARPing. Yeah. So, um, no, whether or not I have an actual real mace oh. is a thing I'm not going to talk about. <laughs> but no, I do not have a foam mace. Maces are legal in Georgia, I think. Illegal? I think they're legal. Legal. I think they're legal. Okay. Um, of course, all weapons are legal in Georgia. <laughs> I think that's, that's <laughs> <laughs> including mace. You know, mace and uh, a mace, both both legal in Georgia. Oh, so like spray mace. Yeah. And then hit someone with a mace. Mm-hmm. Mm. Although they're with the with the gun. Mace are the crazy gun ceremonial, stuff. aren't like, they? With the not? crazy gun political stuff. There are these. Uh, I feel like these oddities that I've that have bubbled up in my. Twitter timeline uh, where, uh, you know, reliable, where, where it's illegal to have like this kind of thing, this kind of self-defense thing, which seems like the kind of thing that like even a, a gun grabber like me would not ban. Mm. Um, and yet like an M16, so long as it's not like, you know, automatic is is legal. So it's hmm. there are these weird you know, it's, it's because the politics is pushing out a certain kind of gun legalization and is not really touching these other Things which present similar dangers. Huh. I wonder if that's, I haven't really thought about that, but I wonder if that's uh, an interesting way to think about like politicized law. What would be similar dangers? Well, I mean, I'm thinking about, um, I, I wish I could remember now, like certain kinds of knives, but that's not just, it's just not that. I, I, I'm what trying what to about now. nunchucks? 
Mm. Do they, they sometimes they get banned? Mm. Which that, that does help. They're always getting confiscated at school. Mm, yeah, and it helps avoid a certain frequency of like eye injury, self-inflicted eye injury, when mm. people are banging on their own faces with their nunchucks. Did that ever happen to you? Did you have no, nunchucks? No, I'm not. This, I'm not speaking from personal experience. Um, you should have. Now, now people are trying to are probably concluding that you do in fact own a mace. <laughs> And and again, yeah, so quickly you deny the nunchuck thing. And again, I'm you know I'm happy to uh, I'm happy to talk about foam maces. I don't I don't have one of those. That's true, right? Uh, but were there other things we were going to talk about with respect to Twitch or watching games or? No, I just raised it because of the because you were talking about making a call. But okay, but I think we've I think uh, for the 18th time now that I think I'm clarifying what mm-hmm. is p- precisely. You really so, want a telos, don't so you? So is there the a show? Ha- there needs to be a telos for every episode for you. Mm. So is there a um, is there a happy tune that we could play? Probably not. No, the I Skype mean, tune is awfully nice, though. Most, we could sing. Most I, I times think our listeners don't hear it, though. No, uh, so I leave it in sometimes, right? Sometimes. Sometimes I just I leave in the... Mo- most times, no. I leave in the bloopity bloop thing. Yeah, but not the... Because I like the show to move along. I like the show to move along, so I cut some of that out. Yeah. Today, though, I'm not cutting anything out. You're just dropping this Well, so it's been, what, nine or ten weeks since we've last... At least. Eight months, I think, eight months. It's been a crazy amount of time. Maybe 14 months. And, and so we, and, and I'm about to go out of town to a conference yep. and then pretty shortly thereafter, you're going to go out of town for a conference. Yeah. Maybe we're probably going to get another one in, in between those two things, but we, but we, Maybe. we really do today. We had to record cause I'm leaving tomorrow. Right. And so basically I'm going to hit stop and push this thing out. Yeah. So this is another one of those. I think right? there could be another episode in 2019. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to guarantee it, Uh huh. but. I think a betting person would conclude that there would be another one in 2019 after this one. A podcast is just an RSS feed. Right. Right. And and so what I'm going to do, Joe, I think I'm going to take that feed and I'm just going to start pointing to other more popular podcasts. Oh. So, you know, it's like, oh, another episode. And, and it turns out, you know, it's pointing to some other audio file. Nice. Can I do that? Uh, I can even include our own show notes. It could be a meta. This could be the metacast where it in- includes our show notes. <laughs> But the audio file that it references is somebody else's. What's fascinating about this is I, I think there is probably a trademark claim lurking somewhere in that fact pattern about um, suggesting sponsorship or affiliation where none exists. Well, first of all, it's not a fact pattern. It is a proposal. Okay. Um, secondly. I, I was experiencing it as a hypothetical. Oh, I, I, was, I was making a serious proposal. Mm, yeah. Um, I, well, I think that any... Hmm. Wouldn't it be like, is there going to be any consumer confusion? If we, if we actually point to a, a serious podcast where <laughs> containing edifying content, is any consumer going to be confused that it's associated with us? Yeah. But no, I guess not. Um, yeah. I, I would need to think about that more. The, it, of course, uh, as may be germane to an email we may talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the facts really matter in figuring hmm. out how a thing actually is going to play out. So, um, we need to, we probably need to flesh this out a bit more Okay. before I could figure out was, is it really a risk of consumer confusion as to source or as to sponsorship or affiliation? So you want to flesh this out? Let me get out. How my is legal. the thing being presented? Let me get out my legal pad. Let's flesh this out right now. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Okay. In fact, you know, the other weird thing, so I, I, you know, I went up to, um, 
uh, near DC to pick up my son. And so I've been gone, right? And so actually, you and I haven't really seen each other. That's true. Really for, much at all for since, quite a while since yeah. school ended. And and you know, there was the was exam it from writing. before I left for Scotland. Yes. Yeah. No, no. After you got back from Scotland, we went out to dinner, right? Did we? Yes. Because you, you, you gave Meredith oh, and me that nice yes, little that's, gift. That's right. That's right. Um, that is true. We, but we didn't. So we, we saw each other at a restaurant. Yeah. But we didn't see each other in, in, in a more relaxed sort of casual. We style. haven't had a real conversation. Right. Uh, we've had a loud public. We've had a conversation in a loud public place. Yes. Mm. Uh, did folks see my, um, on, on our, on, on oral argument. Uh, on our on our Twitter feed. Twitter feed. There's a picture of me next to a statue of Adam Smith. I did. I I, I quote tweeted that. Yes. As an explanation for our hiatus. It's sort of a for oral argument listeners, fans, are argunauts. <laughs> I can't say it the way you like to say it. Argunauts. Argonauts. No, no, just just say argue. Argunauts. Just say ar- and, and don't really say argue, so just say argue. Argonauts. 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 Yeah. yeah. Uh, they will appreciate the humor of my being next to a statue of uh, Adam Smith. It was such a dumb joke a long time ago, wasn't it? It, it was. Because it, like, it was a dumb caricature of Adam Smith and of you. But I think what I think was great about it was, was that you really stuck to it anyway. <laughs> I mean, as dumb as it was, you, you were really persistent about it. Yeah. And I, that, you got to admire that at I a certain level. the stupidest stuff. You had some real stick to about it. So Now that both my kids are back in the house for a little bit. Oh, the uh, dad jokes are just going to go wild, they'll right? Just, I would say, and they'll just look at me and they'll say, like, why do you say these things? <laughs> <laughs> like with real, with not quite contempt, more just kind of puzzlement. Yeah. Like yeah. what, what, what kind of creature are you? We've it's kind of what's going on. Stage. Yeah. But again, it was, I was in Edinburgh and I, I did not know that. The I think statue... they say Edinburgh. Hmm? I think they say Edinburgh. I just did. No, I used, you had an Oro in there. A what? You had kind of an Oro. Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Mm. Okay. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not a Scot. I don't know if you know this, but I'm, I'm not <laughs> Scottish. Um, so I didn't know that there would be the statue of Adam Smith yeah. as we were walking in the center of town up toward the castle. Uh, I think it's called the Royal Mile or something like that. Anywho, uh, we saw the statue and, uh, listener Dan said, mm. Hey, look at that. And I said, Oh my gosh, I need to get my picture in front of that. And he was good enough to take it. So oh, thank you, a- listener Dan. Oh my gosh. I miss listener Dan. Yeah, he'll be back in Athens at some point. Yeah, presumably. Oh, you just you can't say. Don't be creepy. Nobody try to find listener Dan. <laughs> Sorry, that's a Merlin Man thing. You got to edit that out. You can't. You're just there's a there's, there's an no interesting edits. John Roderick Merlin Man divide on don't be creepy. By the way, there's a what an interesting John Roderick Merlin Man divide on don't be creepy. Oh, These I didn't know there two, was a divide two podcasting on that. Personalities. I, I've I've heard the Merlin Man Don't Be Creepy thing many many times. Yeah, because he's got a podcast with you know tens and tens of thousands of listeners, and it's a very personal show. You know, he talks mm. talks a lot about um, uh, you know, it's it's he's does, does many shows, right? But but right. you know, I was back to work his first one. He was on no. that, he was on that Twit. Twitch. Yeah, he was on this week in tech. Not Twitch. This week in tech. Yeah, yeah Twitch. Day long 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 ago. A little bit. And then there was an inbox zero we kind of thing. But I feel like Back to Work was his first regular podcast. Maybe. Most people can trace their origins back to Dan Benjamin. 
Mm, right. As podcasters, right? So true. We'd love to see a network diagram of that. And so, so, it, and that is a, uh, um, at least notionally a, and, and not only notionally, but like, you know, there's a lot of discussion around. We're talking about back to work. Yeah. Ar- around productivity and, and, yeah. and life. And so, so I think a lot of people who listen to that, right, um, feel a very personal connection. And sure. so, you know, he's like, you know, I'm living in San Francisco and maybe I don't want random people who feel like they found themselves, you know, coming all the way to San Francisco and finding me and my family. And, Yikes. You know, so it's that kind yeah. of thing. Whereas John Roderick, you know, he was um, singer in the long in, in, in the long winters, and and it's otherwise, he's you know, got a very different personality. It's like I don't mind if you you, you come up to me. He and was say, recently huh? a candidate for elected office in the Seattle I don't area. Know if it was recent. It was a few years ago. A few years ago, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, whatever time. I can't figure it out anymore. Anywho, yeah. Um, so yeah, he's kind of living a different sort of public life. Yeah. I guess you're saying has a different attitude yeah, toward living. Yeah, I, th- I think life. both of those things, and, and and each of them is independently true, mm-hmm. right? A more a more public persona as a right. as a you know a a rock star, but also a you know a, a an open person in a different way. Not that Merlin's not open, but yeah, anyway, right? Yeah, this is this is not a meta podcast about about road work or <laughs> Roderick on the line, or and I didn't share the work. photo uh, in order to encourage creepiness or be creepy myself. Uh, I simply thought it was fun. Joe, if you could just, um, since we are not that kind of podcast, if you could just, for the record, state your uh, home address, please. (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious. For my part, if you're in Athens and you want to meet up, anytime. Okay. I mean, for you, no. Although you remember that another you talk- you encouraged people to hug me I at did. one I was point, didn't say, you? We did have a little running gag where I encouraged people to give you because Joe is a notoriously affectionate person and and he's a hugger. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Joe, you like your personal space, would you say? I, I do. Although I also am, uh, I'm a big softy about a lot of things. Like I, I can be, I will cry really at the drop of a hat. So, hmm. I yeah. don't think I've ever seen you cry. Oh my gosh! Really? I don't think so. Huh? That's that's interesting to me. I'm sure that's wrong. No, I I, I think I would remember. Huh? Well, uh, I, so in fact, I don't. I don't. I'm not sure. I believe that you cry easily because it would have happened at least a half a dozen times on this show. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that definitely um, in the past has. Uh, prompted tears is and it's quite interesting because i'm i enjoy so i enjoy teaching i enjoy the uh as professors of course we go and give talks based on papers and blah blah blah. i enjoy this very much so so speaking when i know other people are going to be listening is not a thing i have a problem with some people do some people are sort of made anxious by public speaking when i'm not such a person mm-hmm. um but uh and i was this was brought to mind based on a, an event uh in our work life not too long ago, um, a lunch at which some remarks were offered about uh, people who were leaving the community for various reasons. And I had to make remarks on a, an occasion not unlike that back when I left Portland, Oregon mm. some time ago. And <laughs> this was, it was two events. They were not that fun, like a week apart, maybe something like that. And, and in both instances, I, I wouldn't say I was crying. I would say I was projectile crying. I mean, I was, <laughs> oh my God. I was crying to such a degree that you'd kind of worry about the person in the first row. Like, are they getting uh, splashed? Oh I mean, it was, it was just like whoosh, whoosh, massive crying. At least that's how it felt. Hmm. Um, 
and it was because I had to make these remarks about this other person and blah, blah, blah. anyway, what a mess, what a mess. So I was reminded of that. Uh, and the fact that that did not happen to anyone that uh, we experienced the other day. And it definitely would have if I had done it. <laughs> if I'd been the one who had to make remarks, it'd be like, everyone put on a rain poncho. Well, this kind of relates to something we're going to talk about a little bit later. Mm. I think. At least it's, I've got something I want to talk about. Okay, but, cool. Um, um, but, but I do, you know, I, I do get, I, I'm not saying more so than anyone else, but there, I feel things very strongly. Mm. Like a lot of people, I think. And, sure. You know, so if I'm watching a film, I will find myself all of a sudden that moment will happen where it is almost like overwhelming the emotion. And and so that will make me cry. Mm. It, but it's almost like it's being, you know, like I feel my whole body, you know, clenched by this emotion yeah. and, and the tears almost like squeezed out. Right. Mm. Um, being and, being present at certain musical performances has had that effect on me as mm. well. Yeah, so it, so so it, it's a sense of, and I'm wondering too, with the speech that you gave, or or with the f- farewell that you gave, or or that you you were giving it, right? Yes, I had to make remarks yeah. about, yeah, yeah. Um, so but I can just, also see getting choked up when someone else is giving. I mean, sure, because I think the, the 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 through line here is this sudden sense of meaning, right? The sudden coming together of meaning and. A lot of what we are as humans, we're the meaning-making machines. Oh, right? yeah. We draw connections and we, we imbue things in the world with, you know, concepts and ideas and stories and all these. And a lot of times yeah. this can be very unhelpful. To such a degree but, that, that it happens even when we're not awake. No, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of dreaming is about working through meaning possibilities. Uh, it, well, I don't know. At least yeah. one's recollections of dreams can be that. Um, yeah, the recollections surely can. I mean, people notoriously try to attribute meaning to, to dreams that they've had, which have you know, seemingly meaningful content. And there's a lot of, I don't know what the latest, you know, it's always, it seems to get, this is like um, what, nutrition what, in the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, you like, know, it's like back and forth. There. The latest it, on dream theory. Yeah. Is it garbage collection or is it, um, or, or is it right. like something in the psyche? You know, yeah, but look, even if it's garbage collection, t- knowing that a thing is garbage and not, I mean, those, that, the very distinction itself is mm-hmm. is predicated on meaning isn't it? it it's predicated on on an attribution of meaning yeah right now yeah there's there's something deep there joe but i but i feel like that you know the, this this um emotional state which i you know i i experienced as a very young person i was i was raised i i well i kind of our, our family was lutheran and and i um uh, I think I think I was the one after maybe going to Sunday school who wanted our family to go to church, and so we started going to church. And I was actually confirmed in the Lutheran church. This mm. is kind of before, um, before I really I left the church and uh, at like thirteen or something like that. But but I was confirmed, and I remember at that confirmation as I was like giving my little, you know, I think everybody gives their speech or whatever. Or mm. At least I did, and I I kind of remember some of what I said. But but I remember as I was saying it, the coming together of lots of strands, and it felt like you know, it felt divine. It felt you know, which was, I felt that sense of divinity sense, right, in other contexts. But that sense of divinity is kind of the sense of deep meaning right, mm. that you see in the world. Right. Um, and the phrase um, choked up, when someone says, you know, I got choked yeah. up or I was getting choked up, that physical, like, that sort of rising and converging and sort of in your throat is is a, um, I'm thinking of it as like a physical, it's like a physical coming together right it's like a physical rising and converging um 
in your own body, in like in your body as right. you're experiencing that emotional state. And there's a, there's a lot of super interesting stuff to say about the connection between um, feelings in the body and how they both come from concepts but give rise to concepts. It's like super fascinating. Mm. But I, um, I get, you know, maybe another time we can talk. I think we've talked about narrative in like the courtroom before and narrative in law, both mm-hmm. narrative in legal writing, but also narrative in legal practice. Mm. Um, we had a number of guests who we talked to. They, uh, those were always great shows. I yeah. referred students to those um, before um, who are writing about that kind of thing. But then um, I don't know that we've talked about, I'm trying to remember if we talked about pathos in this very, like, it's not, it's like almost this sudden sense of zeal, the sudden sense of, um, maybe maybe the right word is sublime, right? That, that the, the meaning is like overwhelming and you mm. feel small because of it. Mm. I don't know if that's always, but so the interesting thing about like a courtroom drama, you know, this is why I think entertainment constantly returns to it is it is imbued with this kind of cultural meaning. Like we are doing something as a culture here, which is profound. Right. right? And that very sense of profundity, I wonder if it interferes with the analyticity that we normally attribute to kind of legal fact finding, because there's a very mundane objective in a trial Right, and it doesn't even have to be the high stakes of a criminal trial. It could be a, a civil suit, but there's this very mundane aspect of let's just get all the evidence out and let some dispassionate, objective people find out, tell us what happened. But on the other hand, you know, and, and the fact that people constantly make these courtroom uh, uh, situations the subject of dramas, right? It, it, there, there is this profound, in, this sudden encounter with. This thing that doubtless a lot of people in the courtroom, uh, lawyers and, and and litigants, have had kind of swimming around, ruminating on for months, if not years, and it's all coming together. And um, it, that, that, you know, I don't know that. And depending I'm kind of reach, on, I'm just I hadn't thought about talking. Depending about this, on but. the proceeding, uh, the nature of the proceeding and the nature of the dispute, it is either m- more or less close to the idea that this is a substitute for violence. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, we, so it's full of all kinds of uh, v- uh, v- very deep cultural significance. Yeah, it taps into aggression and another. Yeah. Mm. I feel like who's written on this? I don't know. We, we, let's talk about this offline. Let's see if we can, can yeah. get someone to talk about the. Um, I know that we've talked about courtrooms and emotions. I'm forgetting the episode, episode though, or at least we've read a paper. Maybe we try to get to, I can't remember now. I know we've talked about this sort of thing before. Mm-hmm. And maybe we've talked about exactly this kind of thing. And this is just me being 47 years old. <laughs> well, um, I'm not going to help you out with that. I'm farther along on that, on that road. Yeah, but you're um, not as dumb as I am. So what was it that you wanted to talk about? I will do my best. I feel like there's a real deficit now in the, um, I will do my best to, to, I can't promise projectile crying, but I will do my best to simply, <laughs> to merely cry so that you can have the benefit of that experience. Well, this is on our final episode, the 200th episode, which will be our final episode. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe that'll be a ton. Yeah. Is that going to be our final episode? I don't know. Who knows? I just know it'll be in 2023. What number are we on now? <laughs> this is this is episode 197 of yeah. the so episode 200 oral could, argument podcast could come out by night by 2023. That could happen. Well, you know there are lots of legal podcasts now. Um, yeah. The, uh, um, 
University of Virginia has this new common law podcast, mm. which seems great. Of course, there's Brian Fry's thing. There's uh, Stephen Bobby's National Security Law podcast. So there's all kinds of. It's also like, like and uh, Northwestern University Law School has. A, I think it's it's faculty oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, like Chicago's had something like that for a long time, which has been in a podcast feed, releasing recordings of yeah. talks and things. So. You know, in terms of this kind of conversational thing, um, there there are an increasing number, mm-hmm. I would say. So, yeah. you know, you, you have to, like, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. That's our email. Should we keep doing the show? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so what, you said you had a thing. Um, so what was that? Do you have the the um, mail? You want to open up the mailbag? Well, just, there was just a smidge. W- just a smidge. Just this one. You see, you were talking about this one. Well, did you have anything that stuck out for you? Message. Well, it was we're this, not going to be able to get to everything. This is not a full mailbag show. It was show. one from uh, a listener about grading. Was this okay, some, you go ahead and read that one. Okay. Uh, from listener Clayton. Uh, Hi, guys. I really enjoy the podcast. As a law student at a school similar to the University of Georgia, I often have questions about how professors grade and what grading process is like. Are there specific things that separate good, great, and average papers? Most of all, have either of you used the grading discretion in most syllabi to bump a student up or down a third of a letter grade? Wasn't sure how common it actually is. Thanks for the podcast. Keep it up. Did you have any thoughts on this? There's sort of two different, two quite different things there. One seems more like a procedural thing. Uh, about um, the the bump up or down. This is often done with respect to uh, so-called class participation. Yeah. Um, I don't use that thing or that mechanism in, um, uh, in, in a larger sort of what I would call a casebook oriented class. Yeah. I, I don't have, I don't use that. I don't track participation. I don't have a up or down thing. And it, and in seminars, of course, it's a very different, much more complicated set of things you're doing, at least for, for my seminar students. For me, so. too. I mean, for me, for, um, for like my basically legal, legal theory seminar, you know, that involves... you can have students doing presentations, yes. you can have them post discussion questions, you can have them doing exactly. all kinds of things. That, and, and so there are, you know, formulae that you can use to try to assign some points and incorporate that into your overall grade assessment. So seminar is kind of a, like a different thing, right? Right. Um, but I think in larger... But, but I would say even in seminar, like the, the paper itself, to the extent there's a, a paper in product is the most important component of the grade for Undoubtedly. Me. And those other things can make a marginal difference. Like I say in the syllabus, it's like a third, two thirds, or one quarter, three quarters. Right. It depends on the the seminar. And and of course, you know, once you say one quarter, three quarters, like it's it's kind of like if you know enough about statistics, like you say, well, what's the variance of the one and what's the variance of the other? Like so, it's somewhat arbitrary the way right. these. But that's I try to use that as a guide, mm. right? You know, so I do actually use those numerical right. breakdowns. Now but, with this with this sort of division between uh, or you know rough distinction between. Like a, a large doctrinal or casebook class, as you might call it, and, and a smaller seminar type class, as you might call it. In many institutions, and this is certainly true of ours, there is a, a related distinction made between classes in which a curve applies and a class in which it doesn't. Further, there is a distinction between classes in which anonymous grading is a practical thing you can do and classes in which it's not. And so seminars usually don't have a curve, usually not anonymous grading. It's usually you know to whom you're giving the grade when you're giving the grade and you're doing your calculations and all that stuff. Um, The reason I mention those two things is because it has an effect on this bump up, bump down thing. So if you decide you want to do a class participation in a large doctrinal class, 
assuming you find a way that, to track that on a practical basis, which is a challenge actually in a large class. Um, but assuming you find a way to do that, you're going to have to have some procedure where you've got grades, then you've got a de-anonymization process, then you've got to do some bumping up and bumping, of bumping down. Up or bumping down. And so, you know, there are some interesting mechanics involved in that stuff. But I got to say, as I think I began with, I, this is not something I've done in a very long time. Um, so I don't, and I don't know how prevalent it is or isn't. Do you have so one thing you, I, I don't know, and, and it and it depends very much on. I mean, there's some there's some law schools that don't do grades. Uh, they they do all law schools use grades in the sense that they have a certain number of discriminators, right? right. Some of them have only four. Some of them have how many do we have? There's we go, a ve- we go that is a four, very small number of law schools. We go from four point three. Like realistically, down to what two point or two point five or something two point three. It'd be interesting to see the stats. I don't know. I don't know. But. So that's basically like twenty something discriminators or right. something like that. So, um, so so you know the the question is how many discriminators does the school have, and then what is the culture of their use? Yes, right. And and ours is pretty traditional. That's a lar- that's a very large um, context question. I mean, this question of you know how much does this really go on in terms of right individual professors and individual classes giving individual bumps up or down. Right? Yes, but I, I think that the question, the answer to the question will depend on on both the number of discriminators and the culture of the use of those discriminators. And so in a traditional class where there is, he said, a third of a grade, so, um, so clearly has in mind a, a, B, a slightly more traditional... Like a B plus B, B minus, where you could be, like there's those are... So if you, you could go up a third is B to like B minus to B or B to B plus. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because there are three things there, B plus B, B yeah. minus. I yeah. think I said there were 20 discriminators. I think I was thinking of like being able to give a 3.5, 3.4, but that's not how we do. We have fewer than that. We have, what, three times three? I mean, basically we have nine probably, I guess. Yeah, somewhere between nine and 11. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, and, and whereas I think, I don't, I don't know what Yale has. I think it's honors. Do they have high pass? I th- yeah, I think, well, it's, yeah, something like, it's some version of HPF. And then Stanford, I w- when I was at Stanford, they had a more traditional system. And now they, I think they have a more Yale-like system. So I, I don't know. I mean, so it's, they have fewer. Um, so one, one could obviously de-anonymize, you know, you put in your blind grades if, if you're on a blind grading system and right. kind of look at where things are and then bump people up or down. Right. Um, and, and I could see doing that to try to, you know, to the extent that the lines you draw between where the B plus is and the A minus is, it can be, I won't say arbitrary because there, if, if there's an enforced curve, you may not be able to move it up. And, right. And I mean, it does interact with that. Like how, how much play is there in the joints before you de-anonymize such that if you changed one person's grade, would it create a curve issue? Right. Um, and, and again, seeing this sort of, of schools in general, right? Cause you've got like, is there a curve? Where is the curve? How much flexibility is there to depart from the curve? I mean, these are policy questions on which schools take ver- <laughs> many different positions and these right. things interact. So. And especially if it's a large class, I think one should be very cautious about the ability to to kind of um, gauge engagement it, to the extent you're trying to do that with classroom participation. Mm. I mean, you could very carefully, you know, when you call on people, mark down how they do. And you could, um, you certainly can knock people down for attendance, which violates the attendance policy of the class, so long mm. as they have some notice of that. You certainly could. Right. There's more you could do. You know, a lot of the things that you would do to try to 
quantify that may inject a kind of um, uh, further anxiety into the class, which may not be conducive to the overall goal of creating a kind of discussion and venturing that, you know, to the extent you're trying to induce a kind of right. imaginative venturing, you know, in a play, in a, in a kind of safer place to, to do that, you know, kind of, you know, let's, in order to really figure this out, let's stretch the limits here. Like to the extent you want people to show up with that kind of spirit, if they know that they're being graded on performance with every word they say, you know, you measure something, you change it. Yeah. And so you got to pay attention to that. And different people react to that in different ways. Some right. people might be less sensitive to it. Other people might be more sensitive to it. So it's a, there'll be some variability on the degree to which the thing changes in the process of measuring it. I think, you know, so, so grades are, in my mind, a necessary evil. And, um, but they are, there is an irreducible evil in them, I think, um, even as there may be an, uh, kind of like, uh, a necessary good. Um, and, and the, the evil is that they inevitably affect one's intentions or one's motivations. And, um, you know, they can be a measure of success, but again, as soon as you measure something, then you know, to the extent that people want to succeed in a traditional way, then the, then the grade becomes a thing to, to seek. And mm. it becomes part of one's motivation. And that, you know, it changes things a little bit. Now, it need not be a huge problem, right? I mean, you know, motivations are never exactly pure. And, and wanting, to, wanting to see an identified measure and to succeed under that measure can be a way when you kind of don't know enough to know what you need to know, like of, of kind of gauging, like, okay, what should I, you know what I mean? So, sure. so achieving a certain grade can say, okay, that's, that's what I was trying to do. Um, it's just in law school where almost all the work in, in terms of the grade comes in at the very end. And so it's not, it's yeah. not like you have these inter- intermediate steps where you can say, okay, the grade is useful to me because now I can see, you know, what I need to change in order to do this. But you can see that over the course of a law school career. So I'm, these aren't like totally corrupting or anything, but no. but I do think that they have, there is this irreducible core of, because they are kind of measurement, changing the, you know, affecting the nature of one's motivation. Um, and, you know, I, like, do, does the good outweigh the bad is, is always the question. And of course, employers in a professional school demand some information. Right. I, I don't know how much, and that may be overstated. Um, if we're up to me, we would get rid of all these things. <laughs> but, yeah. but we would have to find a way to, to give students the feedback they need to grow, right? right? And to give them the information they need to show others, like, here's, here's kind of what I can do. Here are my strengths. Here are my weaknesses. Yeah. And like in a world where lots and lots of people are applying to lots and lots of things and there are lots of decisions to be made and there's not an infinite amount of time to decide those things, like a, a very, you know, coarse, you know, number Right. may appeal to those for whom what that number measures is important. And, and coarseness is, you know, um, coarseness is a, is a variable. So you can have a system that has, you know, the uh, HPU uh, or, you know, HSU or something like that, you know, honors, satisfactory, unsatisfactory or something of this nature, um, which I think a, a virtue of that uh, that I am particularly uh, fond of, and a reason why I would favor that uh, among grading systems uh, is, it, assuming one were to have a grading system where these distinctions were made, mm-hmm. uh, I think m- making more than about three uh, is um, not great for a, a sort of psychometric and statistics reason. 
which I suppose we could call something like inter-rater reliability, the notion that if, if, so you, you teach property, I've taught property a few times before, and not recently, but uh, I've taught it. Um, some other people on our faculty teach it, other people at other faculties teach it. So uh, if, if, we were, if we were sorting exam papers into, you know, H, S, and U, honors, satisfactory, unsatisfactory, um, uh, I think you could sort a stack of your papers I could come in and sort the same stack of papers myself independently, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, someone else could come in and stack them in. If we're using three categories, there's going to be an extremely high degree of agreement among yes. all of us about which pile every paper is in, right? The more categories we have, four, five, six, that degree of agreement among people who are rating the same group of things by sorting them into piles, right, goes down. Uh, and their agreement about the specific bucket, correct? Put them in, correct. But but of course the the specificity of the bucket matters less with more discriminators. True, uh, and so there's a it's a function of how many just uh, how many discriminators are being applied and how many measurement occasions are there. So you can think of different courses as being different measurement occasions. Yeah, let's just stick to one course for a second, though. Like you were doing, like, you know, property, yeah, but, oh, right? I'm just saying yeah. over the scheme of what you think you're accomplishing by, by assigning grades and the, right. the, the ultimate takeaway message of things like a GPA and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, there, there, all these pieces are moving pieces. That's so true. one of my, and I, I, you know, I, I was, when I was a law student, I didn't like grades and, um, but I had a law school professor who kind of changed my mind on, on the traditional system, you know, the. 0.0 to 4.3 system or whatever it is. Mm. Um, precisely on this issue of like the more discriminators you have, the basically the lower the costs of error, right? And because so the, the, if you make an – so to the extent that you have inter-rater uh, inter conflict in the HSU system, right? There's some kid who's gotten a satisfactory who almost got an honors, right? And with enough kids, maybe there's going to be – um, and I'm, th- you know, I shouldn't say kids. These are adults Wait, in law so, school. But, so but but there's going to be. Can I stop you? For there's going to be a student. Hold on. There's going to be a student in 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 each class, who um, in, in meaning law school class, law school year, who basically got all satisfactories, who was on, who you know, almost got all honors, or vice versa. And the all honors kid looks like a really different student from the all satisfactory student. Yeah. But the the person who. You know, I would have rated a 3.8 and you would have rated a 3.6. Like, we both know there's, like, basically no difference between those two. Like, between A- minus and B+, plus, there's very little difference. And we understand there can be a lot of, like, right. disagree, you know. Di- and, and so our hope is that over the course of a bunch of grades, that all kind of shakes out, right? So, you know, the, the A-, minus B+, plus, it kind of comes out But it out can shake out over the HSU thing as well because there'll be people who, ha- who for whom the Hs very much predominate. People for whom the S's very much predominate, the U's very much predominate. And then there'll be two other groups, which is the mix, right? I've got a mix of H's and S's. I've got a mix of S's and U's. So, yes, so what I'm saying is that in, in the HSU system, right, there'll be fewer people as to whom there would be a lot of um, uh, inter-rater conflict, right? But, th- right. but those few, there, there'll be a few kids who come out way worse under that system. 
I'm not sure I understand. I'm not sure I agree with that in, in the because part of what you're doing is suggesting that there will be that, that no matter whether you do HSU or some very large, much larger number of discriminators, that there are always people close to a line, no matter how many lines there right. are or aren't. And right. I'm not sure I think that's right. I think that one of the reasons why the inter-rater reliability goes up when you have fewer categories is because there actually aren't that many people close to the line. Uh, and that the the application of more discriminators itself gets your mind to think there are people closer to the lines, and they really are. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, my own stack of exams and how I would, they pretty much fall along a spectrum. Now, now there are, there's a heartland of the median paper, right? And right. you can identify what's in that heartland. There's a heartland of a much smaller heartland of like truly excellent papers, right? That really go yeah. above and beyond. And then there, there's a group of very good papers, right? Um, and then there's a group of, I think, papers where they just didn't get or And I would say right? this is but, question by question too, right? So it depends mm-hmm. on how you structure the test yeah. and how many questions you have. And if you do this sort of, are you applying the, the, the framework of categorization question by question or, and or to the exam as a whole, if you have, you know, more than one question. So there's, there's some other mechanics things. I know that we've had this argument before on the podcast. On the podcast? Yeah, I think so. Argument about what? About, about, the, about you know, whether there should be grades. I it was probably pretty early on in the run, I'm guessing, because we did more of these kinds of shows where mm. we would have this kind of topic. Right. right? Like our, our, uh, so our world-famous U.S. news show. There's half of this email we haven't talked about yet, which is the, the grading, what, like, and I think we're getting to it, though. Yeah. About grading, um, separating, you know, average papers, good papers, great papers. Is that what you're... And there's a part of this email, well... There is a there 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 is a there's something this email makes me think of, which oh. is what which is what our topic is for today. Oh, okay. What's I our don't topic? Know if you know what our topic. I'm is. so glad we're getting to it because it's you know. We're well, fun. what was the we're, other part? We've let's, been let's, brushing the let's rust answer, off. Let's answer the other. Let's answer the other part of the email. Oh, what, what do you got, Joe? This is the what makes them better. What, what read that again? Read read. The, so we, we just basically did the last part, right. if I recall. I have enough questions about how professors grade and what the grading process is like. Which is, I guess, there are really three or four. Right, it's the op- it, it's it's are there uh, specific nasty things? brutish and but not short. <laughs> are there things that separate good, great, and average papers? I have a very, I mean, I have a very specific answer to the that last bit about what separates stronger papers from weaker papers. I do. I think I might too. What What is your very specific answer? M- mine is um, the, the degree to which the student really wrestles with the detailed facts that are stated in the questions. And and the way that those facts show that the issue really falls across different l- boundary lines that we've learned about in the course. Um, some students really wrestle with the f- detailed facts, and some seem to gloss over them more. Don't mm-hmm. don't really engage with them as much. And and I think I'm a, like a lot of exam writers, where I, I sort of spend some time crafting the facts so that they really give you an opportunity to do what I just described, which is really wrestle with them and show the way in which things sort of fall across different doctrinal boundary lines and question lines. Yeah, so, I, I think in terms of uh, uh, students getting ready for exams, I, I always tell my students practice writing answers to exams. So I, I, I'm a big believer in clear writing and clear thinking going together and almost being inseparable. Yeah. And that what you want to do in an exam answer, like in so much other writing, right, at least to, to get competent at it, to get, 
decent at it is to apprehend the problem and then and then tell me, you know, in, in an answer, like, you know, why it should come out one way or the other. It's like very simple. It's the kind of thing if, if you were in a if you were having a dinner conversation about a whether a movie was any good, it would like it would, I think it would be totally obvious to you how, what would what would make for a better argument and a worse argument. Right. It, you know, you would, as you say, you would latch on to specific facts and you would have a, an explanation for why those facts matter. Mm-hmm. Right. I've heard you do this arrow thing with exam stuff, which I never. Understood. I feel like we did that in the yeah, podcast. But, but I, I, my recollection of it is as much about my not really understanding why you were describing it that way as what you as the way you described yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I, ta- I, ta- I, I, I get use this archer analogy. Yeah, right? that's where, it. That's it. Where. Um, or say, you know, so a legal dispute, first of all, someone comes in your office or, uh, and they have a problem with someone and there's just a fight in the world, right? And so the very first task is kind of picking apart that fight into its kind of separate issues. Like right. what, what issues does it present? It's the stream of, you know, all the reasons the other person is terrible, right? <laughs> has to be pulled apart into what are the specific disputes here. And you have to identify the body of law, the, the different bodies of law that might be responsive to those disputes. Right. So that's it. a matter of like identifying like, you know, is this a nuisance issue, yeah. right? In, in property law, is this a trespass issue? Is it an encroachment? And, you know, all these different things. And it's funny. I tend I tend to write exams in such a way that I'm definitely not having them engage in that process. Mm-hmm. Where I, I've got separate questions and the, the way that I ask the question, I'm focusing them on like, talk to me about the, the patent infringement problem here. Yeah. Talk to me about the this particular kind of fiduciary duty problem and corporate law thing here. Yeah, I'm not, I, I don't know if I do this very well, but I, I, I have a short answer section where I kind of put them on rails and I say, you know, for instance, you know, suppose, you know, suppose you're appealing, you know, this this lawsuit, uh, uh, this decision by the state Supreme Court, suppose there were like a super state Supreme Court um, and you want them to come out differently, like show them why this other doctrine would be better than this doctrine, mm. or maybe this this other doctrine is borrowed from another right. area of law. So how would you adapt it and show that this is the better way of proceeding? You know, so I'm trying to like, narrow them in on a particular way of, uh, um, on a particular issue, but trying to get them to think more imaginatively about yeah. that issue, right? right? So, so that's the purpose of my short answers. The long essays are, you know, in property there can be disputes that raise a lot of different issues, yes. right? And, and I think this is often more true in the first year classes than in the than in the um, upper di- upper year classes. Yeah. Um, and I don't teach in the first year very much anymore, except in the IP survey elective, the one elective that I do. Yeah, I don't know. No, I mean, I don't know if in IP, if I would do the same thing. I might, I've thrown in intellectual property issues on some of my exams before. Sure. Um, but typically, I think in the short answers, there there have been some. I had one like problem with a restaurateur and recipes. And as you know, recipes are kind of an interesting <laughs> Right. Anyway, yeah. Um, so, but the, that, the that we- aside, so so what I so once you've identified these the legal issue, maybe you know maybe this is a nuisance, right? The very fr- the, what you got to do is set up your target, and and the target is you know uh, the the legal standard, which could be a rule or a standard for determining whether there has been a nuisance. It's this kind of template category of facts, right? This that would establish a nuisance, and then the facts are kind of like your arrows, mm. right? And so you're standing back and you pull out the. F- the facts. You pull out an arrow and you fire it at the target. And what you need to describe as a student is, I think you even said this on, on some show we recorded for maybe my undergraduates, or the flight of the arrow, mm. right? You need to tell me why the arrow hits or does not hit the target. Now, sometimes legal argument concerns what the target should be. You know, you say nuisance should be this. I say it should be 
this and here's a reason why this will get it better, right? That's a matter of like where the target is. It's at the level of theory, right? It's about yeah. that. Um, but for a new law student, like it, you, will, you will get a good grade if you can just do a good job of stating a standard and then, get, and then describing the flight of the arrow, basically describing why, that, why the arrows, why these facts either fall within the target or do not. And it's that comma because part of the answer which is so critical, right? Yeah. You know, um, that's absolutely you know, this true. is a nuisance, comma, because, you know, here they did that and that meets up with the standard because blah, blah, blah. In other words, a, a melding of the, of the facts with the law. And so I think the only way to get decent at this is, is to practice, right? Is to pr- repeatedly saying, okay, here's what the law is and here's, or, you know, arguably the law should be this or that. I think it would be better because of this or that. And you can either use some law and economics or some distributive justice or some other principles or, you know, whether it's some instrument of, whether there's some social policy the law is aiming at. You can have lots of kind of these reasons why the standard should be one way or the other. Maybe it doesn't even involve that. Maybe you just take the standard off the shelf that your professor gave you. Uh, and maybe there's no argument about it. And you just say, this is what it is. And the only question here is like, ah, oh, these facts, it could go this way, it could go that way, but you got to explain why. You've yes. got to explain why it could go this way or that way. And that right. is so, – so the point the, of the Archer analogy – The comma because thing is like doing so much of the work. Right. But in, see – In the written explanation. If you think about the Archer, right, you can't help – and you think, okay, I've got my facts, right? I've got the thing. And what I need to describe, right, like a, like a color commentator, right, is what's going on in this archery competition, right? Mm. Is that arrow hitting or not? And once you think of it that way, you, you, like you haven't even written, you haven't done any color commentary if you don't talk about whether the arrow hits the target. Right. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I like, so I like it better this time around, um, the, the, the metaphor. Um, there is still a, a part of the, there's still a part of the process that I don't think it captures, which is that m- much of the time, much of what makes a law exam question an interesting and challenging question, which is why it might be attractive to a professor to draft it that way, is that it to presents ambiguity and presents um, opportunities for reflecting on different facets of what you've learned that... In many of the cases they read pre- present as if they don't have that quality. Mm-hmm. And so talking up through the fact that there are, you know, we, giving all the becauses, talking carefully about the reasons why you're assessing it the way you're assessing it, um, but wrestling with the fact that, gosh, this is actually a close question. This, right. The, there, be, but if you viewed it as a dispute where people are walking in and, and having a, 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 a litigation about it they both have good arguments yeah and and that's for why the existing legal materials really do favor their so i always talk about this is like i i use this as a as a even though it's an an analogy or metaphor it's it's in some ways like more concrete than just iraq or c-rack which sometimes the students hear which is you know very abstract yeah you know um but um so i always say that this is just a way to get competent and getting competent is a good goal for many students, you know, in the first year, right? Just, sure. you know, being competently able to make legal argument, then you can use more finesse. And you can finesse the analogy to, to kind of show that finesse, right? Because there are many ways that it could be close. It could be close because if you actually look at the target, you find out that there's not just a, a crisp red ring in the bullseye. Like mm. there's this like spectrum of colors, this right. kind of rainbow and people disagree about. It could be close because people... You know, because maybe there are two different arrows and it's not clear which one you should fire or maybe like no one was looking when the arrow was fired and they're trying to reconstruct what happened. after. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, th- 
you can get the analogy can get kind of crazy, right? But but it captures this like is the uncertainty about the law or is it about the facts and what really is the difference between an uncertainty about how the facts apply and what the law is? Mm. Like that's a deep legal theoretical question. Maybe right. there isn't one. Um, hmm. So anyway, some facility with that helps. So I I think that at least at at um, the law schools I've taught at that good answers are able routinely to do this, to give, yes. to identify the law and give just, and give justifications for why the standard is met or not met. Now I ask these short answers, which require, you know, some knowledge of different kinds of legal, you know, different kinds of what a garden variety law and policy thinking, you know, whether it's like basic law and econ or kind of basic thinking about um, justice or, or, or basic thinking about how law can be used to implement social policy or not. And, legal process. I do a little bit with like what institution. So, so there, there, you have to know those things too, but you know, once you get good at this process of giving justifications, um, for, uh, law and fact, then it's pretty easy to slip into kind of the next level up, mm. you know, the, the, the kind of the meta level right. where, where you're arguing about what the law should be. So anyway, I, th- I think that's, it's just practice and, I think we've talked about this before on the show too, where people say, you know, what should I read before law school and, or what should I read over the summer to do better? And my usual answer is like novels, right? Or, uh, partly it's because like what you want to get good at is writing, saying, being able to take a thought in your mind and put it on the page in a way that, yes, that's the thought that I intended to communicate. Ideally for where there's an audience of others who can say, wait a minute, I didn't understand what you were saying. Like, this is why I encourage students to write in groups and to share their answers with each other. And so in a way that it's, you know, what should I read? The answer is you should be writing, not reading. Um, Well, no, I, but I I mean, I think you need to read great writing of different kinds. Well, that's true too. Because that's about finding yourself, you know, as a, as a writer. A more specific answer I have given on occasion when it seemed appropriate and that a student might hear. I mean, there is a very particular book, which I haven't read in a number of years, but which I, I have read before. And it struck me as being quite, quite on the money in many, many, many ways is this book called Getting to Maybe, which you may or may not have heard of. But I know um, that it's great. It, it ha- unfortunately, it sounds like one of those airport books, but but, but it's, it's not. I know that it's not, uh, and it's it's quite specific to law school final exam. Yeah, that that milieu. Yeah, uh, and I think a lot of what you and I have been saying here for the last minutes is it really um, is is said in a different way. Um, and with different examples. And so a student might flip through, it's probably in your law school library, honestly, um, and flip through it and see maybe that's a resource as well. Yeah. For a person who's asking like, what's, what should I read or what, you know, my answer is like, read, um, Virginia Woolf to the lighthouse. Mm. Right. Read Cormac McCarthy. Right. Read like read great writers. Yeah. Austin. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm, You're not a fan. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm, I'm not not a fan. I just I'm not <laughs> I'm not steeped in Jane Austen. Yeah, I, I, I that's a hole in my education. Mm. But you could also read non like there's great nonfiction. Yeah, read some philosophy. Yeah, you know, read. I don't know. Just re- read good writers of of different kinds and and experiment. Like you know how like growing up. Like being a teenager is partly like trying on different hats in a way. Like what kind of person am I? Yeah. What am I going to front as they say? Right. What am I going to represent? You know, and um, 
and, and I think this, like the, the, the presentation of the intellectual self is something that people experiment with through school. And you should, like you should experiment with the intellectual self in, yeah. in law school or whatever school you're in and maybe through life. Um, because your identity is as a, your identity as a lawyer is surely not formed on your first, by your first day of law school. No. But your idea as a legal thinker is not formed either. So I don't know. Experiment. So what you said you had, there was a topic? Yeah. Let's get to our topic for today, yeah. John. We are uh, I mean, 59 so, minutes in. Yeah. We've got, and we've seconds. got at least another three hours. So it's good that we get to the topic now, I think. So this also, because the question was about how to do well in exams. And, you know, I, like, or how do we grade? How do we grade? And yes. But the implicit in that is like, maybe that, that maybe, ma- it yeah. matters in a way. And, and I'm, and of course it does. Right. Um, like many profs, I probably share with my students some words to try to, you know, keep grades in perspective. Mm. And, and that includes reminding students that there are kind of all kinds of talents that get you into law school. And, that will and, and many many different sorts of talents which will be relevant to your practice as a lawyer, policymaker, advocate, teacher, whatever you're going to be doing. Right? This is a, this is a product of many different kinds of talents expressed in different ways over the course of a career. Yes. And in law school, we it is true we especially in the first year we get very unidimensional with the way that we evaluate your you know your competence, your performance. And, and so a lot of those things which will make you, which made you great before and will make you great after, if you pursue them and develop them, right. are kind of squeezed out, you know, in, in the first year. Is that, is that a function of the need to really get up to speed on a quite different culture? I don't know if it's a different, I think there is a process of enculturation and, and that's something to talk about another time. You know, what is that culture? What, but the is, unidimensionality, I wonder how, well, whether it I helps I think there's this that. essential analytical skill, which a lot of students don't come in with. You can call it like thinking like a lawyer. I don't think of it quite that way because I think it's like more, it's, it's more like commonly analytical. Just, just this kind of deconstructing something, seeing the reasons, being able to mm. think reasons and write reasons and, you know, to be able right. to do that kind of thing just yeah. is a, I, it, it's not like special to lawyering. The, the way that it's expressed is, is different and culturally lawyering, right? Um, yeah. Uh, but, but that's a common skill that I think everybody does need, like all lawyers need, right? right? Um, they'll need it in different ways and different measure. And so you can be a, you can be a C student on these kinds of grounds, which is, and, and be competent at it. And yet, you know, and when you get out of law school, excel, right? But, but you still need that piece. Yeah. You need to have been through this. And it's funny. You, I think, um, I think you need to be, you not, you not only need to be able to do it, this sort of, this sort of reasons and connecting reasons with outcomes right. and, uh, creating a package of, of all these materials that fit together well. Right. I think you need to not only be able to do it, I think you need to be able to see that you are doing it. Mm. Um, and you need to be able to do it on command. Yeah, I, like I, you need to be yeah. able to like say, I am about to do this yeah. and do it. It's funny you say you need to be kind of aware. You need to have an awareness that you're doing it. I actually thought you were going to say you need to be able to do it without thinking about it. Well, uh, I, I think it will be the m- most... Um, fun and powerful when you can do it without thinking that much about yeah. it. This, um, and this thing that like drives first years crazy about like, you know, why don't you just tell me the list of things I need to know, right? 
right? We've talked about this before in the yeah, show. Yeah, like, you yeah. know, you, we, you know, I, I know that you want me to tell you the list of the laws so that you can study those that list, and then I can ask you questions about that, that list, and then you can come back and you can, you know, tell me the answers to the questions. And that's just not laws like this how and not a what, right? Yeah. You're, you're developing this, this skill. Um, but by the third year, I think, you know, the students are all competent at this. Some are ex- some are truly excellent. Yeah. For some, this is never going to be their strength, but like mm. they can do it, right? right. They, it's, it's like, you know, they're speaking the language. Um, and But then they, you know, they don't always realize how much better at this they've gotten than they were in the first semester of the first year, right? Sure. So it's a yes. li- there's a little bit of a Mr. Miyagi kind of paint the fence, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, wash the deck wash kind on, of thing. Wash on, wash off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a little bit of that. And so it's like, okay, well... You know, if if I help develop that skill, I feel good about that, even if they may not realize that, you know, exactly how much effort it was to kind of become enculturated into that or to develop that analytical capacity. Yeah. Um, but so so I'm not saying that we need that we're doing the wrong thing, although, you know, I think there are a lot of things we do that could be dramatically improved. Um, and not all of those are clear to me by any measure. But um, but there is a kind of. Um, kind of illusion of unidimensionality of the entire practice, which mm. is which is kind of built into the first year experience, yeah. which is also in other ways sometimes infantilizing, right? I mean, it's like this can be. You might have lockers again. There's kind of um, you're all taking the same classes. Clicks can develop. It's a little you know, and and there's all this anxiety, right. and so a lot of what we need to do is to try to get rid of the anxiety part and to bring out the exploration part, right? And that's the design problem. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. But I share with them, right, that you know that. You know, having good grades in the first, yes, it helps you get that first job. There's no question about that. I'm not here to say, you know, paint a false picture of the world. But careers are long and, um, you know, commencement stages are littered with people saying, I can't believe they brought me back here to talk because, you know, I was a C student and they have, of course, gone on to great things. And, right. and so what happens is after you graduate law school and you have this skill that we work so hard to instill, um, and, and other skills, too. I mean, we work on lots of skills in law school, but this is a core one in the first year. Um, all these other great things about you kick in with an absolute vengeance. Mm. You know, when you're out being a lawyer, a policymaker, a politician, uh, uh, going on to another graduate school, being a teacher, whatever it is that you're doing, right? All, you know, it's no longer unidimensional, right? It is about all these other things that you use with this kind of gained capacity at, um, at analysis, right? At, at legal analysis that you have, um, in, in, again, in very varying measure. So it's a way of kind of trying to change their perspective on, on, on just how important the first year is, because it's important in some ways, but it's very important to keep in perspective the, 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 in some ways, like, limited importance of the first year, right? The limited importance of grades. It's not that they are unimportant, right? But they don't tell the whole story. Right. Um, so anyway, there's this, one of the best articles that I have read recently, I found this several years ago, is by Lawrence Krieger and Kenan Sheldon, um, who are uh, at, well, let's see, um, Krieger is a clinical prof at Florida State, and Sheldon, um, it looks like, is a psych professor at uh, University of Missouri. And they wrote a paper called What Makes Lawyers Happy? Hmm. A Data-Driven Prescription to Redefine Professional Success, which um, I think builds on studies in other, in other areas, but did a large study of a bunch of lawyers to find out, like, you know, what is their 
you know, what is their reported well-being? Huh. And then to what does this correlate? And they did some regressions and other things. So um, anyway, I thought we could talk about that. <laughs> okay. Let I me mean, just give let me just give you the headline. I've not re- I've not read the paper. I know, so. I know. I wanted I wanted to I wanted to blindside you with this, Joe. Nice. Because I wanted Mission accomplished. I wanted your reactions. I wanted your unfiltered reactions. Okay. First of all, what what do you think? Let me just ask you. Since you've not read this paper, is that right? That is true. Okay. And uh, I'm not holding anything in my hands, am I, Joe? You you are not holding anything in your hands. Okay. Uh, I just want to establish the conditions of the room. I appreciate that. Okay. The room is in its normal world headquarter condition. Is that right? That's quite true, yeah. Yeah. It's it's littered with junk from my daughter and from all kinds of other people. (laughs) So... Uh, what do you think? Like, what? What if you had to say, like, top two, top three things that correlated with lawyer happiness? What would you think? Do you want me to put you on the spot? Or you so, what kind of things you? were they, they? So, so you can think things like they're uh, measuring. They're measuring a bunch of things. So they know they, they know the, the respondents' uh, age. They know the respondents' yeah. uh, uh, gender. They know the respondents. Um, uh, are they working in a public or a private setting? Are they working in representing other people? Are they working in some policy area? And they know their income, the school they graduated from, you know, the ranking, you know, whether they were on law review, they know um, uh, their, their sense, their, their reported sense of competence and relatedness and autonomy and um, whether they're married, whether they have children, whether they take vacation days, all these kinds of things. Yeah. Well, I would think... I mean, you mentioned autonomy. I, w- I would think that a big predictor of whether a person feels happy in their in their lawyer role is probably not unlike predicting happiness in, in any kind of adult <laughs> life, which is that you feel like you're the author of what you're doing in some meaningful way. That that's a that auto- you have some real autonomy in what you do. Mm-hmm. That you think is number one. I don't know that it's number one. I would say it's very high. It's number one. Okay. <laughs> But I don't think that makes lawyers different from anybody else. I think it right. makes lawyers alike. That's another conclusion. Like here. everybody else. That's another conclusion here. Yeah. Boy, they didn't even need, they just needed to ask Joe. <laughs> so let me just tell you the way that. Hilarious. I, I'll, I'll put a link to the paper in the show notes. I think that's the only link I'm going to have in the show notes this week. But the, because um, I think it's a really interesting paper. I hope more people do more mm. work like this. Mm. Um, I have some other thoughts about this. We're not going to be able to get into all of them, but I just want to give you kind of the headline here because mm, okay. uh, they break things down into tiers like of the kinds of things that make lawyers happy and they report the, the, the correlations here. So T-I-E-R, uh, not T-E-A-R. We were talking about T-E-A-R earlier. Yes. Um, they no, didn't break down and cry. They, n- they're breaking things into groups. Right. So tier one, and these are like um, our values of like 0.66. You know, so these are very, mm. in fact, they, they say that they're so high that you, and, and as some psychologists apparently do, you could take these as definitional of what well-being is. Wow. Um, Bam. Satisfaction of autonomy needs. This is like feeling like you were in control, like you were an author. Uh, satisfaction of relatedness needs that you actually, you know, these are having relationships with others, like mm. feeling related to others. And competence need, like feeling internally like you can do the thing that you're doing, competence. Um, and then also in that category, slightly lower, 0.55, but still very high, is uh, internal work motivation. In other words, are you internally motivated to do the kind of work that you're doing? These are massive and huge. Um, I think... Predictors of... Yeah. 
So a person who feels I said of course massive and huge. You don't get don't, don't get a mistaken joke. It's not one of the other. <laughs> so if you if just to make sure I understand what you're saying. So so if you if you feel like you have a a, a lot of autonomy in what you're doing, that's more, you're more likely to be happy about what you're doing than if right. you have a lot less. And and these are all sep- independently predictive of Yes. So uh, what what was competence? If you feel like you're you're actually are able to do the thing you're required to do, right? Um, you're more likely to feel happy right. about it than right. if not. And what was the third? The other big three relatedness. Related. So if you feel like your your work life lets you have human relationships with people about your work, right? You're more likely to feel happy about your work. So let's take like if you were to negate each of these, right? And let's just take law school. No control over the courses that you take. Encouraged to compete with others and not cooperate, and constantly feeling like you can't do it because you're the subject of a Socratic. Um, um, uh, you're always worried that you're going to be the subject of a Socratic attack, mm. right? And this constant feeling like I don't know what I'm even aiming for here, and right. the professor seems to be this genius who knows everything. You know, quiz ma- see the quizmaster effect and all these yes. other things, right? Right. Um, and, you know, this kind of traditional. I don't. I still haven't seen the paper chase. Oh, really? I should remedy that, right? You should. But this this paper I mean, chased it's, idea... It's, it's now a horribly antiquated movie. Yeah, I know. But... Of course, right. But this, this, this older idea of what law school should be in the first year involves the negation of each of those big three, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, in a way. I, I, I think in a very direct way. In a direct way, but... And, and, you know, with a... Like, to an end. And the the competence point... I mean, this is my earlier question about the acculturation process. It's like there, there is a, you, you law lawyering law as an activity lawyering. It it is its own thing. And you have to, when you, when you can't do it and and you learn how to do it, you're, you're, it is the process of joining a community of practice. Right. And that means you're, there's a period when you're not going to be very good at it. Yeah, but and that's unavoidable. But this is but competent support is something that we should aim at. And so one thing that I tell my students is like even if you know you won't have the power to create the conditions in the firm that you work in or the nonprofit that you work in or wherever you work, you won't have the power to kind of structure that because you'll be a, a junior person. But remember this when you get into a position of power. Yeah. Remember how important it is for and and what your moral obligation is to other people. I think to help them feel autonomous to feel competent to yes. feel related right? we, yes and, and so we can in the ways that you can where it, you can you really should do it including in the first year like reminding them you're where you should be you 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 know you don't yet know how to do this skill with a plum right you can't write a brief like you know you would at one of these high-end supreme court firms yet right you wouldn't be able to do that yeah. on your own but you are now where you should be and here are some things you can do to improve this Right. But this I think that's OK. That involves a feeling of, OK, I, I am I am on this pathway that I'm invested yeah. in and I'm where I'm on this pathway where at the point where I should be. Right. right. It's not a hundred. It's not a 100 mile walk in pitch darkness throughout right. the entire period, or at least it needn't be. Let me give you two things that are negatively correlated mm. with well-being. Billable hours. It's so the, the more hours you bill. Right. OK. Right. And alcohol use mm. and they're both around the same like negative point one hmm. negative point one so not as strongly related as anti-related yeah not as strongly anti-related yeah um 
so but here are the tier four ones, right? Things you think might correlate with satisfaction and well-being, um, but which are pretty weak. Um, so at 0.19 is income and law and decreasing law school debt. Each of those is each, you know, each of those is 0.19. So basically 0.2. So, you know, people who have, you know, less debt are happier and people who have higher incomes are happier, but the effect is modest compared to those earlier ones. So by far, and they, I think they make a distinction between like, like elite, um, Oh, hey, hey, Darcy. Darcy. High profile, you know, high high intensity practice and then service practice, mm-hmm. like much lower income, much lower prestige. Like those people are all happier. Like the prestige lawyers are all unhappier than than this than what they call the service lawyers. Um and it's an important finding. Like even though there's less money and everything else, like these the, the well, other because some are, of the other ones, the big ones, the more the bigger determinants are are ter- are terribly are, positioned. Exactly. Like the relatedness, the confidence, right. the the autonomy thing. And is those all matter so much more yeah. for, for well-being. Uh, so here's some other things. So class rank, um, 0.12. So there is some correlation between class rank and Like and where you were in law school. Where you were in law school. But eh. a lot of that's probably, you know, has to do with other things. So um, um, your law school's ranking Point zero five, so basically not nothing, right. right? So if you ever worried, oh my god, you know, I I didn't get into the right law school, I'm going to be unhappy. Um, the science says no. <laughs> the science <laughs> says you're not going to be any any less happy than if you'd gotten into the law school of your dreams. Um, partnership in a firm, point zero zero. Mm. Making partner doesn't make you happier. Uh, being on Law Journal, what do you think? Point zero zero. Mm. Um. So here's some other things, though. Supervisor autonomy support. Having a supervisor who helps you, who you feel like is encouraging you to kind of be you and to uh, enable you, 0.44, so that's also very, very high. Yeah. Um, uh, Pursuing intrinsic values, 0.3. And then there are these things kind of in the middle. They call tier three. You want me to hit these real quick? Sure, sure. Let's Um, get them on the table. Vacation days actually taken, 0.23. Hmm. Vacation days offered is not really correlated right. well, um, but vacation days taken, 0.23. Having children, 0.2. Being married or long-term committed, 0.17. Exercise, 0.17. Prayer with an affiliated congregation, like 0.07. So pretty weakly correlated. So, all right. So I'm not going to talk about the, you know, we don't have time to talk about the stats and, you know, the, how robust all the findings are. I think it's super interesting, though. Um, and we could talk more about that. Um, I'd love to at some point. What year see. was this published? This was um, 2015. So it's pretty recent data. Yeah, I think I sent it to you a long time ago saying, hey, maybe we could have a show about this. But then we had other things intervened. Yeah, but, um, I, yeah I don't remember that. But. Um, but it's just a fascinating paper. And, and, and the email, you know, I, I don't want to answer an email about how to get good grades <laughs> without mentioning this. Yeah. Right? Um, that Remember that you're living a life, right? And you're, the... the in fair, the question really wasn't how to get good grades. It yes. was about grading our process. Right. Um, yes. And of course, that's a window into grading as a thing that happens in law school. But we have listeners. So I don't know the intention of the letter writer. Yeah. But I know that we have listeners who would take that conversation as being about. Sure. Right. About like how, you know, if we talk about how we do it, they're thinking about how they do it. it right? and, yeah. and of course, how, you know, how people um, achieve or don't in a different frame for measuring it or not is one of the things about that phenomenon. Yeah. 
so it's within the general topic that we're talking about is you could include okay how do i do better given that these are the rubrics people use and these are the metrics and etc cetera, etc cetera. like that's a thing people could worry about right. or wonder about right for sure so i think it's important to say this that that ultimately happiness seems to be about you know your connection to others and your ability to kind of be on your own hero's journey in a yeah. way something that you control now i i do think that for ultimate happiness you you have to have the right perspective even on that that's kind of another topic mm. um uh because i think it's you know i think it's very nested this grading yes. stuff is very nested in a set of like you you know grades could be a way that you could l- learn how well you're doing on certain dimensions of this uh professional future that you imagined for yourself and that you're trying to accomplish yeah um and so why is it important to get that window on your performance well because i want to do better at it but for some value of the word better because this is the life i'm choosing for myself that i'm trying to create for myself and so i you know knowing that i'm doing better at it versus doing worse at it like that seems like a thing i should get some information about but that's how we started like that that you know if you're using the grade to ask yourself how good i am i at the thing i want to do in life it's not the right it's just not the right question, right? It's not, it, it, the question may be right, but it's not the right way of answering it. Well, yeah. It, I mean, I would say it's a very limited, it, it is one window onto that scene. How am I doing with this? Um, it's a small window. There are lots of others and there, and the others might have much more interesting vantage points on that scene. Um, but I don't think it's not aimed at the scene. Like, I think it is a yeah. window on that scene. It's a skill within the scene, right? It, yeah. it measures a skill within the scene. Correct. You're missing so much else about the scene if you just look at that. And, uh, the, and That's also true. And, and I think that the data, you know, seem to bear that out, right? right. If, if the scene is about one's life in which one is playing a role, yeah. right, as a, as a professional, right? And, a life and you're project. asking, like, how am I going to have a happy life? Well, then yes. you need to pay attention to stuff like this. If, if the question is, like, I don't care about how happy I am. I just want to be, like, a successful lawyer. It's like it's not even clear to me that um, that that grade you know well the grades are even determinants of those right of, of mm, that fair thing, point right? I mean there there's so much else that goes in like like with any other field right I think hard work and luck play huge roles yes in addition to kind of natural you know endowments or 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 anything else that you fostered like you know through through hard work yeah um, but you know right place right time. Yep. Knowing the right people. Like a lot of things, some things are within your control and some things are not. And that raises a great, very important, uh, and I think it raises a great uh, a great point and a great opportunity for me to make the point, which is that I, because some people, like the luck thing is some, sometimes it's hard to know what to do about that. I think it's, I think what you said is deeply true, um, that um it's it's not only hard work, but an enormous amount of luck. Um, and so we think of a thing you can ask yourself that is, um, that kind of turns that on its head a little bit, because the luck thing can feel a little bit alienating maybe, or a little bit sort of like, well, if, if autonomy and feeling like the author of this is a good thing, then, then isn't the luck kind of like a bad thing or a random thing or, and I think a way I ask it, and for myself and that I think is useful is, you know, okay, so how can you be someone else's good luck? 
Like, how can you, what thing could you do that could be the good luck for the other person, for another person? Mm-hmm. Because so much of stuff is about luck, <laughs> good and bad. So be somebody's good luck. <laughs> and then the, the, and then you're making things better. Well, I mean, yeah, we need to have a longer conversation at another time in more detail about that. But I, I think being other focused is rather than so self-focused is one way to be happier, but it's also a way to make other people happy. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that can get lost because in, in some ways being a lawyer representing clients can be alienating maybe in a more Marxian sense, right? That you are producing this thing that is not really yours and other people are using for their own advantage. And you right. suddenly you like, you are not connected to this, to whatever good you're doing in the world, you're disconnected from it. Um, but there's a, there's a deep sense in, sense in which, you know, the practice could be so great because it ultimately is about serving other people's needs, right? And that act of serving other people, whether you're a volunteer somewhere or whether you're raising your own children or you're helping friends or, um, or you make it your life's work, whether you're a teacher, right? Or you're a, or a lawyer serving clients, um, I think that can be a, a really that can be a great enhancement to well being, right? To to live in the service of others, mm. yeah, um, very much. But it's that it's that alienating client lawyer relationship, which is the it's it's really on a knife edge. It seems to me sometimes, right, between whether you're doing the alienating kind of thing or the connecting kind of thing. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? A little bit. You see the duality there, though, right? You see I do. It's just been so long since I've had clients. Hmm. Well, you, I think some you, of that has faded students. for me. Hmm? Students are your clients. No, they're not. Hmm. Definitely not. It's not a word I would have imagined. Uh, it's not a word I've ever used to describe them ever before. But, but in this sense, right, in, in the sense that um, part of my life's work, a, a, a large part of my life's work is, 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 using my energies on behalf of others right? mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to further their ends, right? And also as a teacher to help shape their ends in a way that maybe many lawyers can't shape their clients. And so, although I think the, the best tradition of lawyering involves helping your clients see what the problem is and helping them solve their problems rather than being the hired gun, right? It's like right. helping them solve what their problems are and see those problems more clearly for what they are. Yeah. And, and the multiplicity of the things that they are. Yeah. Because most of them are actually many things. Um, and they have choices to make about how to see them and live in them or not. All right. Before we get too much further on this, why don't we just stop? Okay. And why don't we talk again soon? This sounds do you want great. to do another episode, Joe? Sure. Why not? Okay. So let's do, let's, let's plan to do episode 198. Yeah. I'm in. We'll keep, keep trying. Maybe sure. next week sometime. Yeah. I'm around. Are you around? Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's. Should we get out our calendar? Should we do this all, all online here? No, we can do, we can, we don't, listeners don't need to hear that. I think they want to know like when, where, and how are we recording? <laughs> no. Oh boy. Um, I, there's so much more to say about this paper. I feel like, you know, we crammed it in at the end, but, um, but I do commend it to people. To and you're going to link it. And I'm so, going to link it. We yeah. may talk about this kind of thing some more. Yeah. Cool. Um, cool. Cool, cool, cool. You know, you, you think it's about what makes lawyers happy, but everyone who is a longtime listener of the show knows that it's really about what makes Joe happy. That's <laughs> not true. Oh, it's what makes human beings happy. 
or not. A 200-ish episode journey into mm. one man's psyche. Yeah. Here's what would... Here's... Well, no, I think we'll just leave it there. <laughs>